message that you would have us to know through the words of your preacher. And we ask that you would just help us and hear us for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and then find, as we close out our service today, find Hebrews chapter 12. It's been a minute. Yet the Lord is faithful when we are faithless. He is true when we are liars. And nothing catches him by surprise. We do this little gig every week. We come, we hear, we sing, we pray, we remember, we remind, we're reminded, and then we leave and go about our lives. And one of the greatest challenges of being the church and being the elder shepherds of the church is that there is a huge disconnect culturally from us coming here doing this and then us being out there doing that. And there have been many attempts in my life and in my training and my experiences, as have been for you, where a lot of people, a lot of intelligent people, have worked very hard to work out things and plans and strategies and ministries and books and all sorts of trainings and everything else in between that could help us live the Christian life. But as you've heard from Pastor Trey over the last month or so in the teaching of the Word and as is continually going to be preached here from this pulpit to you is that the Word of God is sufficient for us here in this assembly, this gathering, and then out there on the street. The Word of God is sufficient for us in our homes. The Word of God is sufficient for us in our jobs, with our finances, in the context of our relationships, in every aspect of life. The Word of God is sufficient for us. Yet we find that one of the hardest things to do in life is to depend upon the written Scripture. We find that When everything is good, we are extremely spiritual. We pray well. We serve well. We think well. But the slightest bit of discomfort, the slightest bit of pain, the slightest bit of of, of illness or anything that interrupts what we would call the status quo of normality or peace, it begins to rock to the core of our humanity and that human core surely does shatter into the dust of depravity and we begin to see what we're really made of and then we have a dichotomy we have a split opportunity we have two ways to go and the path of the world even in its goodness if I can say that in a general sense and its goodwill will say okay you got to be strong you got to be bold you got to be you got to be you know resilient you got to be confident you got to stand up But the scripture says that in our weakness, we are strong. God himself, the son, when he came to earth, came in weakness. He didn't whirl out of the tempest. So I want to go to Hebrews 12 at the end. He didn't whirl out of the tempest and manifest himself into some ethereal body of magnificence like Thor. 
He didn't come out of the burning bush into a twister of, of, of sulfur and thunder and then stand with brazen eyes and, and, and a cape. He didn't even walk out of the sea like a behemoth with a sword in hand as he's depicted in the metaphors and the imagery of John's apocalypse. He came into the womb of a woman, blessed and glorious. He came through the natural means of birth, lowly and frail, unable to eat or speak. Yet for some strange reason, we as His people, we as the sheep of Christ, we have this uncanny, Americanized ideology that we are superheroes of the faith. And that if we aren't the strongest of all things, if we're not Samson, but remember Samson was glorified in weakness and death. He wasn't much of anything profitable when he was walking around free. We're not to be these heroes. It's a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from the world. It's a lie from our conscience. It's a lie that we are something else and that we are needed and that we are special in the context of being so powerful and so strong and so bold as examples. How many times have you heard in your life, brothers and sisters, that you ought to be an example to the, uh, to the world? You ought to be the example to your siblings. You ought to be the example to the marriages around you. You ought to be the example to the world at large. You ought to be an example to other believers. You ought to be an example to the world of unbelievers. You ought to be an example. And what does that do? It stirs in us this thing of like, wow. Some of us who are a little narcissistic might think, I got this. Others who are self-deprecating go, what am I going to do? And most of us, at all times, in every way, are actors. We know what to say and what to wear and what to think and how to sing and where to walk and how to stand and how to do and all of this stuff. I mean, when I go to a restaurant that has seven forks, I can pretend like I know what to do with them all. I push six to the side, wrap them up in a napkin, I eat with the one. And when the waiter tries to take the one from it, no, this is my fork, you take these. I don't care. But we can learn to act. We can learn to wear the tuxedo. We can learn to put on the mask. We can learn the language and even the dialect. For us who are empathetic in the context of society and culture, we can mold ourselves like chameleons. And beloved, I think the church of Jesus Christ is nothing but a chameleon pretending to be what it is not when it tries to be Christ himself. Let's hear the word of the Lord in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Paul instructs this young elder, have nothing to do. And we've already dealt with verses 7, 8, and 9, but we're going we're gonna to pick up all this, talk about a specific thing this morning, and then continue in the weeks to come. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Nothing. Instead, rather, train yourselves in what? For godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, 
health and fitness. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. This saying, Paul says, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says this several times. I'm telling you now, it's deserving of full acceptance. Embrace it. For to this end we toil, strive. We work, we labor. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There we go. In verse 10, the first part of it, is where I'm going to focus my time today. Because we have our hope set on the living God. All those things that I said in the beginning, all these things that I've stirred in your thoughts and minds as we begin our worship this morning, to think about, to consider puts us in a place where the dichotomy that I was talking and I never finished talking about is that we are either going to embrace the world's way of being strong and bold or we're going to embrace the word's way of promise that we are strong in weakness. Why are we strong in weakness? Because we have a hope that is not of this world. Now see, that too is problematic. Because we think of the hope, and yes, it's not of this world, but we oftentimes sit around and think, oh, I can't wait to die, can't wait to go to heaven, can't wait to be done, and there's nothing wrong with that. Paul had that same problem. It is far better for me, he would say, to be with the Lord, but it is far better for you that I remain. And I'm here to submit, and we're not going to go through that today, but I'm here to submit to you that Paul's joy did not, was not reduced in the fact that he did not have the fulfillment of it by being with Christ. It was continually at the top of his hope, even when he was imprisoned, even when he was suffering, even when he was alone, even when he was rejected. The same thing is true for Jesus and his humanity. He was hated and rejected Belittled, not talk about the physical things that he went through or the judicial way in which he was mistreated. He was hungry. He wept over these things. He labored in prayer over these things. He felt anguish. He felt fear. He felt despair, but he never lost his hope. So we need to realize that the life of abundance is not just getting out of this world, it's also being in this world with a hope of a glory that is ours. And I want you to hear that, church. I want to say it again. The Christian life and its joy and its hope and its abundance is not just about eternal life, though that is its tether, the Word of God teaches us that in the midst of all things, we can have the abundant life here. Now, defining abundant life, I've had that question the last few weeks online, but that's something that the Word must do. And as we grow to understand the Scripture, we will understand what that is. And it's not, just as a parting shot on this topic, on this particular point, it is not about prosperity, peace, and parties. The Christian life will have very few of those things that last very long. 
Paul tells Timothy to have nothing to do with these myths, to teach the church, to not worry about arguing these things. For example, even with what I've just said, it would be very fruitless for us to debate a non-biblical idea that God wants us rich. It'd be ridiculous. We're not even going to debate it. Not only are we not going to debate it, we're not, we're not going to debate those who debate it. We're not going to give party to these things. We're not going to call it out. We're not going to do an expose. It's a waste of time. My children, as they grew up, we bought them toys that replicated real-life adult things. We bought them little cars. We bought them little trucks. We bought them little guns. We bought them little kitchen sets. Little kitchen mitts, little tools. And all these things, when they got to a certain age and they needed the real, they had to leave these little things to the side. There's a lot of things that are being replicated in this world. There's a lot of things that are going on in the name of truth and in the name of, uh, uh, you know, of, of Christ that are just little toys, little replications of, of falsehoods. And we don't need to spend time on those. It's not healthy. What does the Ph.D. debate look like if you want to talk about the psychology of a young child who learns to cook Legos in their playroom at four and then to be the next top chef? It doesn't matter. Who cares? What does it matter that every iteration, that out of every breath, even us, beloved, out of every breath, it is the probability and highly possible that we are actually saying something that is a little off kilter from the context of the truth of scripture we might even be sharing a heresy right now but God's word will teach us and the worst thing to do is to throw ourselves into a fire because we forgot to lace our shoes or zip our pants or take our vitamins just tie, zip, and eat. I hope you get the point. See, our hope when it is in this world, when it is in the temporal things, we've misunderstood. We've misunderstood what the Bible is teaching us. And we're not to walk around downtrodden to the point where we think, oh, wow, we are promised destruction. No, we're not. We're promised life. So when our hope is in our health, or our hope is in our mental health, or our hope is in our physical health, or our hope is in our financial health, or our relational health, or our career health, or the health of our marriage, or the health of our relationship with our children, or the health, the health of any of these things, then we are in trouble when one of those slides into the trash. We're in trouble when we get that report. Sorry, it's not good. You're not going to survive. We're in trouble when everything that we thought we knew we don't know anymore. We're in trouble when the little voices in our head are louder than the trains on the tracks outside. We're in trouble when we wake up at 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 5.15 and 5.25 and 5.27 and 5.29 every day. And somebody's already talking. It's us. We're in trouble 
when we strive and toil in the world to try to work through these things in a manner that's incongruent with what God has promised in His sovereignty. See, we talk the sovereignty game. Paul says to not have anything to do with these silliness. And there's a context there. We already know what they are. There's 20-some-odd weeks of teaching already in this text. I know it's been a few months, but it still is there. You know what Paul's talking about. Use of the law, this, that, and the other, theological debates. How much faith does a woodchuck have? You know, what does faith look like? Well, I don't have faith in my faith, thank God. I have faith given to me by the Spirit in the faithfulness of Christ, even when I don't believe it. And anyone that says, well, I've never not believed the gospel, then they probably don't believe it now. Because when we are swirling in, the, in, the, in, in just the destructive nuances of this world and we are spiraling in small little twister things, you know those little dust things that you see during the summer months, well, like a little tornado, we used to play in them. When we're doing that, there are times where we look up and go, is this even real? Is this real life? Am I praying to my ceiling fan every day? And I hope that you've not had that journey. But let me tell you something. I'd be a liar to say that it doesn't cross my mind at least weekly. Sometimes. I'd be a liar to say that there may be several times a day when I'm laboring in my flesh into spiritual disciplines where I'm thinking, what am I doing? And you know what the Spirit of God does there's your strength. Weakness. Because if I have it figured out, if I know what I know that I know that I know, then I am the only thing keeping me standing. God's work is a divine work. He is a divine being. He is supernaturally powerful and sovereign. He is our hope in this world. This world offers no hope. And we look into the world and what we see and think and what we know and understand is always at odds. So Paul tells Timothy, rather than dealing with all this stuff, rather than fighting all the time in the flesh, rather than trying to evade or get out of these things that cause us to suffer, why are we not training ourselves for godliness? Now see, this is where my introduction needs to have teeth. Because there's a specific way in which God's word tells, tells us to train for godliness. It doesn't tell us to train for godliness by exposing the darkness. And that's our mantra. Dark, 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 dark. Because guess what? We're an evangelist for evil. It doesn't tell us to train for godliness by changing and acting in a certain way that fits the culture around us in the name of Christian living. What kind of blouse should a woman wear? Depends on the weather and her comfort level. If you don't like it, look in the mirror. What kind of music should a Christian listen to? I don't know. I don't like some of y'all's music. And you don't like some of mine. How about what the scripture teaches, whatever's praiseworthy. 
Well, is that band praiseworthy? Probably not. Let that be your conviction. It may not be mine. And if we don't share the same conviction, guess what? Yay! Don't argue over irreverent things and silly things. And I'm not making light. See, ooh, antinomian, live it up. No, live free. And when God, the Spirit, gets to things that will help you in your joy and your service to the church, which are the only real things that matter at this point in our doing until those things are perfected in love, we ought not worry about the finer details. God will handle those. As some heretic said many years ago in August of 1988, he said, those are the get-tos. Yeah, really, I heard him say it. Those are the get-tos. God will get to those things in your life as he is determined to do them when he is determined to do them. So we strive. Train ourselves in godliness because, you know, bodily training, nutrition, good things. Beloved, I'm a big proponent of the physical body being healthy. Because when it's not, the spiritual body and the mental body is not as healthy. But guess what? Those things are out of our control. Disease and genetics and trauma and everything else is out of our control. I don't care what you eat or how good you eat or what you buy or how pure the product is. When God wants you to be sick and he's determined it, you're going to be sick. And it doesn't make us uber spiritual to do anything differently. We'll lay hands on your Big Mac and we'll pray over it. <laughs> Just like your organic chicken that costs $40 a pound. We strive and we toil. Godliness is of value in every way. And beloved, I believe that what godly discipline does is it teaches us to hold the promise of this life and the life to come according to this text because what Paul says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That means embrace it. Don't, don't doubt it. Don't hesitate. Embrace it. Eat it. Digest it. Let it be the nutrient for your life is that everything that is good and profitable according to the promises of God is yours to count as yours. Trey's been in Ephesians for a, a while and, and you know it's hard to get out of chapter 1. It's impossible to get out of chapter 1. So I think we ought to be there every single day in our spiritual lives and the lives of those around us because when we're there, we keep our perspective on who God really is and whose we really are. So to this end of the promises of God, we work and we toil. We work hard with diligence. We work hard with purpose. We work hard with power. Energy, moving toward a goal. And this is the discipline of the Christian life. The question then is, what is the goal? The goal is not to have highbrow theological chops. Those are hobbies. The goal is not to finish all sorts of great things that the world can take pictures of and praise you for doing the work of God. It's not going to happen. There were more dedicated and determined and sacrificial people that have done greater things in the name of Christ in this world than the apostles did. 
Their lives were very short and very, very myopic and very restricted. But yet their lives through the scripture are continually being used by God to grow his people and teach his people. But all these great heroes of the faith aren't in the Bible. Because the point of the Bible is not to praise them. None of them sought glory. Jesus, the Son of God, did not even seek glory. He glorified the Father. And when the Father glorified Him, it was owed Him. And by the way, the Spirit of God only testifies to Christ, not Himself. For recent news. So we toil, we work hard to rest in the promises of God. And the disciplines of the faith. We don't be working hard to try to clean our lives up. Working hard to understand the gospel and to live a gospel intimacy with other people. Starting with our own homes. We don't need Puritan revival. God help me. I don't want that in my life. That was not godly. We don't want Rome revival. We don't want legalism revival. We want grace. And what is the ultimate end of striving to be disciplined, to learn the word and to live the word out? To the praise of his glory. And, and then, and then what's, the, what's, the, what's the point? Why are we here? To serve one another. And that serving is done here in this building every Lord's Day as we listen to each other sing, as we agree in prayer, and as we all eat and hear the instruction of the Word by the elders for your benefit, for the mutual growth of the body. And you are here and you are serving one another by sitting here. Did you know that? Yes, I'm telling you are. What am I supposed to do? This is step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. And when this is all said and done, out of this will come the world. So when we leave here, remember my introduction? When we leave here, then we go into the world. We live life together as we're able with each other, as we're gifted. As opportunity permits it. If we've got the flu, our plans are shot. If my head falls off, well, I'm not going to be singing for you. Out of my hands. I have no power over that. So you have to get together with somebody else. Who can meet your needs. I don't even think it's about Bible study. You want to hear that? I don't even think there's any real profitable example of in-home Bible studies that I've seen in 20 years. When they've been... You know what? I'm going to recant that. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Recently. In the last year or so. I'm talking about church-led, church-sanctioned. Oh, we're going to start doing this. But I have seen people in their daily lives bring the word of God alive in their homes with other people that they love. That's the way it works. It's not about what the elders create a system for you to follow in your house. Where's your small group? And I'm not knocking what people do. I'm just saying, for me and mine, it don't work like that. Whereas my dad would say, that dog don't hunt. It just doesn't. It sits there. 
bird. Okay, you go get it. <laughs> you know. What does work is us learning and living. And it's about the ministry of the saints. Paul is talking to the elder of the church in Ephesus about him doing the ministry to the saints. We toil, we strive. That's, it's everywhere else. The exhortation, the encouragement to be and to know the gospel. What does Paul say to the Philippians? Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not labor or run in vain. And there's dozens of places. Paul's discussion with the, with the Romans. Greet those workers in the Lord. And you probably can't pronounce those names there in, in Romans chapter uh, 16. Trophania and Trophosa. Or however else they're supposed to be pronounced. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. You see, Paul was not the guy doing all the work of the ministry. Paul was teaching the church and there were thousands and tens of thousands of people being used by God to love each other. And it looks nothing like what we see in the culture today. It was organic and led by God. So what do we do? We meet needs and we create ministry as we need it. When you need something, express your needs. And we will do it. The worst thing to do is walk into a restaurant and be told what you're going to eat. You know, our special today, and the only thing on the menu, is the blackened grilled cheese, deep fried in lard. Now for some of you are going, <laughs> a side of chips? No, Brussels sprouts. I don't want that. I want chicken. No chicken here, buddy. Sorry. You take your chicken self out somewhere else. But it is crispy chick. Not today. It's crispy cheese. You see? It's nothing worse than to be in the ministry of God's spiritual family and be told, this is what you shall do to grow. This is what you need. Well, I can't open my mouth that wide. Well, eat it anyway. I mean, it's terrible. It's not good. The ministry of the saints is the point. That's why I'm standing here to minister to you, to teach you and to encourage you and to exhort you and to admonish you to hear the truth of the gospel of Christ so that your hope can always rest on the living God. We must labor for the sake of the Lord in every sense, beyond our worldly pursuits and also within them. See, some people say, we've got to put away everything that the world offers. Quit your jobs, you know, turn off your TVs, unplug your lights, burn down your outhouses. What? No. There's no prescription to poverty, a command to that kind of stuff. There's a command to, I mean, if everybody was in poverty, we'd be one bad bunch of people. We wouldn't even be able to afford the permit to stand on the sidewalk to ask for food. It's not a call to the church. It's something that could happen through persecution, famine. And for those of you who've ever worked with the church overseas, you've seen it. We've got it made over here. But we labor within our worldly pursuits. But why? What difference does it make? Because it's unto the Lord. This is written for our good that we may learn it is under the Lord, and because we have set our hope on the living God. 
And look what it says there. And I'm going to talk about this in more depth as we move through the weeks. For to this in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 4, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. What, to what end? Spiritual disciplines, working, serving, loving. That's where we're at. And it's just a pickup. You might want to go back and listen to my last sermon in December on this. And then he, he, he talks about who this living God is, who is the Savior of all people, especially the Savior of those who are believing. And that's a simple thing. God is, according to the text, and I could show you, I don't have time to carry us through all the usage of this idea through the Old and New Testament, but just the same, we know that there is nothing in Scripture that teaches a general eternal salvation, that, that, that Jesus died and the whole world saved through that. We know that there's nothing in the Scripture that teaches that, that Jesus intended to save the whole of humanity. We also don't want to butcher this text and take it out of context and say, well, he's just talking about all types of people here. No, but we can see throughout the Old and New Testament that there is a sense generally that God and what he does in the world saves some people. Temporally. He saves a bunch of knuckleheads out of Egypt. He saves a bunch of knuckleheads out of this place and out of that place. He does this. He answers prayers. He does all sorts of stuff. So the idea of Savior in the Old and New Testament is not always tethered to eternal life, redemption, justification, all that. It also has a general idea, and that's what Paul's talking about here. I mean, the whole world knows that everything that everybody has comes from God, and God saves us from the floods and saves us from this and saves us from that. He's talking generally, but then he says particularly. This is the contrast there grammatically. He saves eternally those who are his, who believe. And this salvation, this promise to the elect of God, this absolute certainty... The gospel is not an offer of salvation. It is a proclamation of a finished, guaranteed salvation. It is a finished work. It is something that has been done and accomplished and already applied eternally. And faith rests in that proclamation. Faith rests in that promise. Faith rests in that hope. And so now I'm going to juggle the word faith and hope into the same ball. This is why we can know and trust God and what He does in the world among humanity and especially how He saves His own people. Those who have been born of grace, who have been born of the Spirit, who, has been, who have been born and given faith are recognized as those who are justified in the Lord's mercy and power in whom we put our hope and for the reason that we endure and the reason that we continue to toil in each part of our lives every single day. And so because of this, there's some things, there's some affirmations. Here we go. We're going to get a little bit psychological. There's some things that you can say as a believer because of the sovereignty of God and because of the promises of God and the word of God. You can say, I can hold fast because he holds me fast. You can say, I can handle it. I can deal with it. I can survive it because he's been raised to life. You can say, I can hear and know the truth. No matter what I'm thinking or how bad my mind may be or how frustrated my emotions may be or how hard the circumstances may be, I can know and hear the truth because 
The sheep know the voice of their shepherd. Because this is all about the faithfulness of God, right? The faithfulness of God is our hope. The faithfulness of God is where we stand. And beloved, it is so easy. Some of us think, well, you know, well, let me do this. Here's some examples. There have been times in all of our lives where we've looked at ourselves in a present state and gone, oh, I wish I could be like I was, spiritually speaking. I wish I could have the feelings that I had. I wish I could be as content as I used to be. I wish spiritually my life was the way it used to be. You ever been there? I wish my children were as obedient as they used to be. I wish my such and such, don't look at your kids like that, that ain't right. Uh, you know, I wish such and such, I wish my friendships were better. I wish my marriage was like it used to No, 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 this is wrong thinking. We don't gauge our spiritual lives that way. We gauge our spiritual lives by no matter where I am now, my God hasn't moved an inch. No matter where my faith is, where is it? I don't know. I lost it. Is it with the other socks in the dryer? The matching pair? My faith is gone. I have no faith. Help me in my unbelief. But I have this weird, uncanny, ridiculous, absolutely psychotic ideology and resting hope that, you know what, God's got it. I guess when Christ comes, He's going to teach us all things. This is what God does. This is saving faith. If we can call it that. In spite of unbelief, we believe. Because that is the work of God. And then some of us are thinking, well, I'm so disciplined, I really won't ever fall into unbelief. And some of us think that that takes a long time of neglect. Listen, you miss one Sunday, you are in a state of neglect. But you can be here every Sunday. And still lose your faith. You can do everything right. You can be walking high. You can have a marathon that you've trained for. And you are doing time that could break a record. And you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning of. And you step on a Lego and it's over. It's over. You're not running anywhere. But to add the new words that you just spoke into the sailor's handbook. You see, it only takes a second. And then we burn ourselves to death with guilt and frustration. And then we try to fix it. It's not our fixing to fix. It's not our power to fix. It's His faithfulness. So the faithfulness of God is our hope. He cannot fail. Paul tells Timothy that in the second letter. When we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. See, the faithfulness of God must be our anchor to our joy, to our hope, to the resolution of our lives. The faithfulness of God must be the anchor to having contentment in our relationships, in our jobs, in our marriages. In our church. As we live as the people of Christ, we are living out a picture of Christ. And the picture of Christ is a picture of humility, a picture of brokenness, a picture of weakness. That the Father 
carried Him and brought Him to the cross and crushed Him by His purpose. That's why Paul makes this parallel with the sufferings of Christ as something that's incredibly glorious. That it actually feeds the soul of Paul to suffer for the sake of being in the faith. And not everything that Paul suffered was a result of the faith, but he put it there. He had one category of his suffering for the sake of Christ. His disease, his body. Him being a believer didn't cause that to happen. God used that for his purposes in the life of Paul. And so we are a picture of Christ and his, as his church, just like our marriages are a picture of Christ and his church. And it's an essential understanding. We are one with each other. We are one with Christ. We are one together this morning as one body. One body. How easy it is to lose sight of his faithfulness, of his promises, of his covenant. Of his, of, of, of his power and of His promise that He will not fail us, we can count on Him being faithful. Now there's something that I don't think that I should do this morning, so I won't, but I was writing out and looking all different places, and I had 160 some odd things that I had listed out with little scripture references of where people in the Bible alone had trusted and hoped in God. So the next 40 minutes, I'm going to read those out. I'm joking. Some of you like slumped in your seat. Looking at the watch that you aren't wearing. I'm going to list 48 of them. Very quickly. Abraham hoped in God's promises to make them the father of many nations. Sarah hoped in God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise of a son. Isaac hoped in God's promises to father Abraham. Ruth hoped in God's provision and protection as she followed Naomi to Bethlehem. King Asa hoped in God's help to defeat the Ethiopians. Jehoshaphat hoped in God's protection and deliverance. Ezra hoped in God's grace and mercy as he rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah, companions, hoped in God's help to finish the temple walls. Jacob hoped in God's blessings and guidance. Joseph hoped in God's purpose of suffering. You think about Joseph for a minute. So I could just go there and talk about him for an hour. That's why I'm reading in my daily Bible, reading. Joseph is co-regent. And now, this morning, Jacob's going to Egypt to eat the provision of God through the son that his other sons left for dead. Caleb hoped in the promises of God when everyone else saw giants and hopelessness. Hannah hoped in God's faithfulness to answer her prayers for a child. And David hoped in God's protection and salvation from his enemies. And then as he wrote the Psalms, the psalmist hoped for God, in God's goodness and mercy. Psalm 23, Psalm 27. He also hoped in God's deliverance, hoped in God's salvation of righteousness. God's strength and protection, Psalm 71. God's forgiveness and redemption, Psalm 130. The prophet Isaiah hoped in God's comfort and restoration. The prophet Jeremiah hoped in salvation in the midst of suffering. You ever read Lamentations? That's where that incredible text comes. It says, His mercies are new every day. Mercies are new when we're going through it. They're stale when we're not. 
Ezekiel hoped in the promises of God to restore the land of Israel. Solomon hoped that God would give him understanding and all that wisdom. Elijah hoped in God's power to defeat the prophets of Baal and to bring rain on the land. Hezekiah hoped in God's power to deliver them from the Assyrians. And Nehemiah again continued to rebuild the wall just like his people did. Esther hoped in God's protection for her people. And what was happening there? Genocide. Job hoped in God's faithfulness. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that. That's where that comes from. When did he say that? When he was told that a house fell down and killed all of his children. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Daniel hoped in God's deliverance. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego also Zechariah and Elizabeth hoped in the promise of God for their son John. And Mary hoped in God's plan to use her to bring the Savior into the world. John the Baptist hoped in the coming of the Lamb of God. And the centurion in the days of Jesus hoped in the authority that he had to heal his servant. The woman with the issue of blood hoped as she reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment. Jairus hoped in Jesus' power to heal his daughter. The blind man hoped in the mercy and the power of God to restore his sight. Martha and Mary hoped in the power of Christ to raise Lazarus from the dead. Stephen hoped in the promise of eternal life as he was looking into the heavens and his life was being taken from him by stones. Paul hoped in the grace and power of God to preach the gospel while he was persecuted and beaten and left for dead and imprisoned. The early Christians in Rome hoped in God's salvation and righteousness, not in their works. The Corinthians hoped in God's power to raise them from the dead. The Thessalonians hoped in God's promise of eternal life and comfort. Timothy hoped in God's strength as he led the church of Ephesus. The writer, Paul of Hebrews, encouraged his readers to place their hope in Christ as their only high priest. Peter encouraged Christians to place their hope in God's grace and the promise of his return. The apostle John, as we'll just close it out with Revelation hoped in the fulfillment of God's promises to bring His people to the marriage supper for Himself. And like I say, I had a hundred and nearly seventy. But our emotions, our thinking, we look at them sometimes as this just curse, but in the reality of the gospel and what God has shown me today, today, is that my grief awakens my joy. Because it tears away the tethers of anything temporal. And God is faithful to restore it to Himself. That's insanity. Heartbreak and horror and stress and anxiety are the building blocks of rejoicing. According to the scripture, our emotions are awakened in our grief to grasp the picture and the purpose of everything. If we do not suffer, we are not experiencing the joy of the Lord on the opposite side. We're not experiencing humanity. We're not experiencing life. We're not investing in the rest that is ours in Christ Jesus. We're not rejoicing. We're just going. 
We're just living. We're just blasé. We're just happy. We're just thankful. For what? To whom? Without pain, we will not grow. We will not find our deeper emotions that I hate. That flow from the tender affection of those around us to tell us the truth, to embrace us and give us encouragement. And moreover, to replicate the tender affections of our Father who is in heaven and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came from the Father to sacrifice Himself for our glory, for our joy. Beloved, the patience that comes through our suffering is, in my estimation, the roadmap that takes us through the journey. So in our weakness, we are strong. That is Christ. In our sadness, we are joyful. That is Christ. In our worry, we are cared for. And you know, the ta- I don't have to read 900 pages of Scripture. You know where these are. You know that the Scripture says in our weakness we are strong. That is authoritative over you. Whether you have the verse number or not, they weren't written down originally. In our weakness, we are strong. He is our strength. My grace is sufficient. That is the word of the Lord. In our sadness, we'll be turned to gladness. We are joyful. 1 Peter chapter 1. Though for a little while, if necessary, we face various trials and sorrows. But in that trial, our faith that is more precious than gold. And by the way, gold perishes under the right temperature. Our faith will result in the praise and the glory and the honor of Christ. And our joy is inexpressible. Sometimes it sounds like, God help me. I can't make it. And he says, no, but I can. And beloved... I might not believe that at 1 o'clock this afternoon. So I need you to remind me of it. It's a humdinger when you meet an unbeliever in the streets. And you've decided to be honest when people say, how are you doing? And I say, I'm not feeling well, and I'm not doing well, and I'm honestly having a pretty bad day. And they say, oh boy, have you ever thought about praying? And the apologist in me wanted to really get in the form, you know? The evangelist said, yes. Well, I don't know what you believe in, but I know that God can work it all out. I'm going to push this gas thing on your head. I'm not going to answer another person in public. It's true though, right? I mean, God can prophesy through an ass. Balaam's. I say that so the children will go, what do you think? Pay attention. God can prophesy through a bush, through a tree, through a bird, through a child. Trey did a good job of keeping our focus on what prophecy really is last Sunday. It is proclaiming the Word of God. It doesn't matter who says it, what says it, if it's written on the wall, it's written on the bathroom stall, if it's being screened from a roller coaster. It's authoritative and it works. When we are worried, we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Yesterday's gone. I don't want to be cliche, but you know the old thing. And today's present. It's a gift to you. <laughs> Thanks. 
Let our lives today be testimonies of his power. What can do this for me? What can give me this? Folks, I am not a strong and together person. And I know you don't believe that. I'm not. And I've been warned against saying stuff like this to you by people who love me. But when I don't say it, I'm a liar. I am not a strong and put together person. I may be fancy James when I stand here, or I may have the act down of oratory, and my personality may come through in my teaching, but ultimately, I'm broken. And you are too. So don't look to me as your tether to joy. Because you're going to have a real hard time when I fall apart and I can't be there for you. You know what I can do? God can give me the strength to come in here and teach. And every single day, all day long, pray. Until I can't. Okay? That's what I can do. What can you do? You can rest. You can remember. You can remind. There's an R sermon. See, Christ cried in anguish. <clears throat> he cried in fear. He cried in loneliness. When? My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? That's loneliness. <coughs> and he's righteous. <coughs> he's our perfect substitute. He's our lamb. He's our life. He's our Lord. See, the elders are called to do these things. <coughs> Tickling my throat teach and to encourage and to equip and to stay the course. And that's, that's what we're going to do. And so I ask that you pray for me, that you pray for Trey. That as we teach and we do these things, that we do them first in our homes. And we preach to ourselves and to each other in our lives. And then we teach them to our church and then we teach them to our community because we are bound to also proclaim to our community the grace of God. Do the work of an evangelist. Let's close and I want to read something. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12. 11 is a list of all these people who hoped in God. And who never really in the life that they lived in their bodies received the ultimate hope that they were promised. But they rested anyway. And the scripture says that they were looking for something that was better. But beloved, I'm here to remind you that even when it's bad, it's still good. Not because we can ignore it and look past it. But we can know that there's a purpose in it. And if we're believers together, we can see great reconciliation 
If we truly believe the gospel and the spirit of God is in us, we can see great growth and maturity. Therefore, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. I've preached this. There's a list. Let us lay aside every sin that clings so closely and trips us up so that we may run with endurance the race that is set before us as we look to Jesus, the founder, and new word in the English, perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Paul says. Consider him. As Paul tells Timothy, ah, we have our hope set on the living God, our Savior, our stronghold. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you and I may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten that exhortation given to you as children? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, it is for discipline, Paul says, that you have to endure. God is treating you as beloved children. For what child, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without it, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate. You're, you're not a child. You're not a son. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall not much more we be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness, in His separateness. We may share His glory. For the moment, all of it seems very painful rather than pleasant, but later it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And this is an allusion to Moses. And make straight paths to your feet so that what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which one... No one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fa- fails to obtain the grace of God that no, listen to this, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his entire birthright for some food. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to change his mind though he sought it with tears. In verse 18, and the whole point of it, as you've not come to what may be touched. See, we come to the world and all of its issues, and we come to our own proclivities and, 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 and pain, and we come to the experiences of this world, and it's just overwhelming. What do we do? How do we do it? What are we going to do? We can survive it. Because we've not come to these things. Just like at Sinai, which is where Paul goes right here, they came to that mountain that could be touched. They could see it. They could feel it. They could smell the smoke. They could see the tempest of God. They heard, as you'll see in a minute, the command of God that if an animal touches this mountain, kill it, for I'm holy. Do not approach me. Nothing can approach me. 
that's not where we live. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg no more. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have not come to that. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You have been embraced and welcomed in the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the church, to the assembly, to the ecclesia of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new promise. And to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke recompense, vengeance, justice. The blood of Jesus speaks, it is finished. It is finished. Sometimes we think our boldness and our confidence and our strength will make us stand firm and be something to behold. It will make us tall and powerful, we think. And when we put these things in our minds and we act out these silly little childish pretend, it's like cooking on that little oven when we were three. Nobody's eating that Lego. They're going to step on it and ruin the marathon. It's not a potato. We get there, we're just playing the role when we think that our strength and confidence and boldness and convictions are going to make us stand tall and powerful, we've misunderstood the principal reality of the human condition. And we may esteem others who seem to have that gift, but they really don't. There's no one who is strong alone. And the children of God will never be strong in the world apart from weakness. Jesus is the essence of our hope. He is the life. He is the point. See, life takes time, beloved. Love takes time. Joy takes time. And there's going to be a lot of sticky stuff in between all those joyful, loving, living things. The currency of these outcomes is hoping in God during it all. The economy of God's promises and grace are the only thing that we can truly invest in and stand on. We have to hope in the promises of God. We have to see that Jesus Christ has set us free from sin and death and promised us an abundant life today as we traverse these painful times. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that your love for us, that the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us. We thank you, Lord, that through hardship and trials that you show us joy, that you increase our hope, 
And Lord, we can't learn it all today. We can't practice it all and get the discipline right today. It's going to take time. So help us to be patient. Help us to be patient with each other. Help us to be purposeful in the lives of one another that we may be wise and slow to speak and that we may breathe life into the lives of those around us instead of being constantly overwhelmed by the despair of the world. Whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is true, whatever is praiseworthy, Father, help us to think on these things. Help us to be content with this. Help us to know that even in the handwriting before us may say it is not going to be good. We can say it already is. For you are our good Father. And you cause all things to work together for our good. According to your great purpose. According to the purpose of your will. From which you counted us yours before we ever were. In Christ Jesus we stand. In Christ Jesus we are strong. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.